The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. This morning, I'm like uh, 98.9% of everybody else in Charleston have caught this nasty uh, crud that's been going around for the last couple of weeks, this holiday germ to go along with the holiday joy. And uh, if you have enjoyed this this season as well, then uh, you, know, you know what I'm talking about. I want this morning to uh, take the opportunity to... Um, to revisit something that we introduced really two years ago about the same time, um, our uh, mission and values as a congregation. I think it's always good at the beginning of the year to sort of reorient ourselves to the things that really matter as a church. And these things that we talk about this morning are the things that are, are, are fundamental to who we are as a church at Grace on the Ashley. These are things that are fundamental to what makes us unique. Uh, this is our way of understanding and articulating who God has made us and what He has called us as a body to do. Uh, if you drive around Beast Ferry Road or you, if you go to the right out of our parking lot and you turn uh, right or left down uh, Ashley River Road, uh, you'll count uh, on two hands at least uh, the number of churches that are within a stone's throw of, of where we are. Uh, and literally there are churches all over the city, uh, ones that have been around for a long time, and it seems that every day there are new churches that are, are, are popping up. Um, the question that we constantly have to ask, you're going to have to, I apologize also that my microphone is going to act up this morning. Uh, that is going to be a way to keep you awake, uh, if nothing else, and hopefully it won't be too big of a distraction. I'll just deal with it. If it uh, becomes too big of a problem, I'll, uh, I'll turn it off and just talk loud. It's important for us to know who we are. What has God uniquely made us to be? How has He uniquely gifted us and positioned us? And what has He called us particularly to be about? Not in sort of general terms, but in specific terminology. Uh, and we articulated this a couple of years ago, and it's, it's language we want to continue to articulate in front of you, continue to remind you of, continue to put in front of you to sort of keep our eyes on the prize, to keep our eyes focused on the things that God has called us to. And the analogy we've used nearly every time we've talked about this is the analogy of building a house. That if you're building a house, you need some things at the outset that are just critical to the whole process. Uh, you need a set of blueprints to build a house. You need blueprints because blueprints uh, sort of serve as a guide and a measure. They, they guide you as to how to go about what you're doing on a, on a daily basis. I built a couple of homes, and I, I know how important blueprints are. You need something that tells you what to do day to day. You need something that becomes your, your guide and your reference point uh, so that you know what's the next step and what is the next thing that we need to do. What's, what is the important uh, 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 thing that has to happen next, and, and what is the pathway that gets us from where we are to where we need to go? 
And blueprints do that for you if you're building a house. A blueprint tells you the, the pathway. It provides for you a guide on what to do and what sequence of things to do in order to get to the goal. And so you need a good blueprint. You also need a blueprint because it shows you what the end result is going to look like. A blueprint gives you a picture of what the house looks like at the end. And you can constantly be sort of measuring your progress by the end result. Uh, my son loves Legos. Any of you other parents have kids who like Legos? Um, he's getting older now, so he can do the more complicated Legos with more pieces. And uh, one of the things that's critical for Legos is keeping the box, because on the box is the picture of the finished product. And if you just look at that pile of Legos, it's overwhelming. Uh, but if you can follow the instructions and you can keep an eye on the picture on the box, you can constantly be gauging yourself and telling, hey, am I building this Star Wars spaceship correctly? Or is it looking more like a you know, city bus or something else? And you know you need to reorient. And so we've uh, sort of spent some time as a leadership developing a, a, a mission statement that sort of captures for us the blueprint of what we're to be about. And we've developed some, some identified some values that are sort of the, the shared convictions of who we are as a congregation that motivate what we do, that sort of make us who we are and make us unique. And, uh, and, and that's what we're going to be talking about uh, this morning. Uh, our, our mission uh, and a mission sort of does two things. Uh, a mission, as I mentioned, provides a guide and a measure, but it answers also a question for us. It answers the question of what. What are we to be about? What is the primary thing that God has equipped us and placed us here to do? Mission answers the question of what. Values answer the question of why. Answer the question of why. Why is it that we do the things we do? What are the things that motivate us? What are the, the values that sort of flow out of our hearts, that, that, that sort of the things that are our convictions that we share that are most important to us, that, that drive us to do the things that we do? It answers the question, why do we do what we do? So the mission answers, what are we to do? And the values describe why we do them. We're going to look at those two things just sort of in a flyby this morning, uh, sort of to get them fresh in your minds, to set the stage for next Sunday and perhaps the following where we introduce a new piece that we haven't talked about before. And, and that is a piece called Measures. Measures. Mission is important. It's important to know what we're about. Values are important. It's important to identify what really motivates us and why we do what we do. But measures are also important. Measures answer the question of how. It answers the question of how do we measure success? How do we know if we're hitting the target? And we need to be able to quantify that and lay out for uh, ourselves some measures, uh, sort of a measuring tape for us so that we can be constantly looking at what we're doing and asking the question, are we moving in the right direction? Are we getting at what we're trying to get at? Are we accomplishing the what that God has called us to do? Or are we getting distracted with peripheral things that aren't driving us toward the main thing? And so we will begin to articulate that next week, this idea of, of measures and what does it look like? But we begin this morning just sort of refreshing our minds and revisiting and sort of re-looking at this idea of mission. What is it that we're about? 
And I, I hope that by now you can say our mission statement as a church without it going up on the screen. Can you do that? Just nod your head yes if you think you can do that. Uh, we're going to try to do that. No, we're not. I'm going to put it on the screen. I'm not going to put you on the spot this morning. I'm just going to put it on the screen and we're going to say it together. Our mission statement. What is it that, that drives us the what? Grace on the, exa- on the Ashley exists for this. We're about satisfying the spiritually hungry with the all-sufficient Word of God. Say it again. Satisfying the spiritually hungry with the all-sufficient Word of God. Somebody asks you somewhere, where do you go to church? You're going to tell them, I go to church at Grace on the Ashley. That's my church family. And they're going to ask you, well, what do, you, what do I need to know about that church? What, is, what does that church do? What's it about? That is what you're going to tell them. Grace on the Ashley, what we do is we satisfy spiritually hungry people with the all-sufficient Word of God. That is the what that God has called us to do. That is the what. And there's a lot packed into that little statement. There are some phrases in there that are, that are incredibly important. Hungry is an important word. Satisfying is an important word. All-sufficient Word of God is an important phrase. All three of those things are, are packed with meaning that is critical. Hunger is a, a, an incredibly motivating desire. Uh, anybody who's actually been hungry physically knows how motivational hunger can be. In fact, when we look at both the Old and the New Testament, but primarily in the Old Testament, we see that God uses hunger as a motivating factor. He uses famine or uh, 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 an inflicted hunger upon the people as a part of His judgment in a physical sort of a, a way. In, in Leviticus chapter 26 and other places, you can see God articulate very clearly to His people, because you've disobeyed me, I'm going to withhold food and you're going to be hungry for a while. A physical hunger. But it's not the only kind of hunger, and it's not the only kind of famine that the Scriptures speak of. The Scriptures speak of both a physical hunger and a physical famine, but they also speak of a spiritual hunger and a spiritual famine. And that's described in Amos chapter 8. God says to His prophet, Behold, verse 11, the days are coming when I will send a famine on the land. But it's not a famine of bread nor of thirst for water but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. People will wander from sea to sea, from north to the east. They'll run to and fro, and they'll seek the word of the Lord, but they'll not find it. Not too terribly long after Amos declared those words, the people of God went into a a season in which, for four centuries, they truly couldn't find the word of the Lord because God stopped speaking to them. The intertestamental period, it's called. We just celebrated the birth of Christ, the moment in which God in history resumed speaking to his people. And he spoke loudly and clearly through the the birth of his son, through the incarnation. But the words that are true in Amos' day and following are also true in our day. Part of the way God judges His people is not just in physical famine, but in a famine for His Word. Now, in Amos' day, the issue was God stopped speaking. In our day, God hasn't stopped speaking. It's just that people don't care too much to listen. And it's just that God's people don't often, in the broader scope of the spectrum of the 
the status of the church, particularly in our country these days, even God's people don't care to speak God's word all that much. You can travel from church to church, and I hear people tell me this almost every week as I greet guests in our welcome center after church. We visited church after church after church, and we can't find places where God's word's being taught. And that baffles me. I, I don't understand it. I don't go anywhere else except for here. So I don't really know what other people are doing. But I hear it from our guests, and so I suspect that it's true that there is indeed a famine for hearing the words of the Lord. People have to look hard to find it. People are hungry. They're hungry for the word of the Lord. It's the only thing that can satisfy the human soul because it's through the word of the God that we encounter the God of the word. It's through the Word of God that God reveals Himself. And if we can't be exposed to the Word, then we're isolated from our God. So people are hungry. They're hungry for all sorts of things. There are two kinds of spiritual hunger. There's a spiritual hunger that's experienced by lost people. Lost people experience a spiritual hunger. You say, well... How does, that, how does that look? And what does that look like? What do you mean? Because lost people uh, aren't, aren't, by definition, they're lost. They're not connected to God. So how can they be spiritually hungry? Well, the Bible tells us that lost people are wired. They're, they're hardwired, built in as human beings with some sense for the reality that they were made by a Creator and that they are somehow separated from Him. The writer of Ecclesiastes puts it this way in Ecclesiastes 3.11. He writes this, He, speaking of God, has made everything beautiful in His time. And He has put eternity into man's heart. God has put eternity into man's heart. Somehow, people know that they're eternal. That there's more about living than just the world in which we live. That there's more about living than just the life that we experience here. They know inherently, somehow, that there is a Creator that made them. And they know somehow that they are distant from Him. Paul writes in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 20, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So that they're without excuse. Paul writes, God has wired it in. He's made himself known through creation that he exists and that he's powerful and that he's real. And lost people know that. They don't always admit that. But when they put their, pillow, their heads on the pillow at night, they know that there's something missing. They know that there's something in their life that is not right. And they chase after every single thing that the world has to offer to try and fill that emptiness inside. And it never, ever, ever satisfies. Because the only thing that can satisfy that is for them to be reconciled to their Creator. The one that they are separated from because of their sin. And so they look everywhere to try and fill that void. In Haggai chapter 1, verses 5 through 6, the prophet says this of the spiritually hungry lost people of his day. 
He says, Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns his wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Such vivid picture of what it looks like to be lost and spiritually starving. And looking in every direction to find satisfaction, only to find that the things you think will satisfy you don't. You go to food and you eat and you have all that you can eat, but at the end of the day it never does what? It doesn't fully satisfy you. You don't have enough. You go to drink, but you drink all you want, and at the end of the day you find yourself still what? Still thirsty. You have all of this income and wealth and you accumulate it for yourself and you, and, you, and you pile it all in to what? A bag filled with holes. What is that a picture of? It's just, you dump it in and it all just spills right out. It just never, it just never produces what it promises and it never fully satisfies. John Calvin said this, We know that God punishes men in both ways both by withdrawing His blessing so that the earth is parched and the heaven gives no rain, and also, even when there's a good supply of the fruits of the earth, by preventing their satisfying so that there's no real enjoyment of them. It often happens that men collect what would be quite a sufficient quantity of food, but for all that are still always hungry. This kind of curse is seen the more plainly when God deprives the bread and wine of their true virtue so that eating and drinking fail to support the strength. There's ever a condition, a curse, that describes the condition of our culture. It's that. Lost people, starving, looking in every direction to find satisfaction, but never actually finding that it's always somehow just beyond their grasp. They're starving. They're hungry. Not because the land is barren, but because the land is filled with large quantities of food that can't satisfy. And so people are starving, lost people, spiritually. They need to be satisfied with the only thing that can satisfy them, the all-sufficient Word of God, who brings them into an encounter with the God Himself, who is Himself all-sufficient. But there's another kind of spiritually hungry person that exists in the world. It's not just the lost, but it's what I'll call the saved who are malnourished. It's another category of people that we find in the world around us. People who have at some point heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and have received it, have repented of their sin and entrusted their lives to the Lord Jesus Christ to save their souls. But beyond that, nobody's fed them the Word of God on a regular basis. They've existed solely on spiritual junk food. They're born again, but they're malnourished. They've never been fed a a rich and full diet of God's truth. And so because of that, their, their growth is stunted. And their development and their walk with the Lord is at a standstill or in regression. You see, the Word of God, the all-sufficient Word of God, is critical to satisfying the spiritually lost man, but it's critical to sustaining and growing the saved man. Do you see that as well? 
It's not just that we come to the Word of God and feast and are saved, and that's the end of it. We continue to feast on God's Word because it continues to satisfy the hunger of our soul, and it continues to equip us to grow and develop. There's a massive number of people in this community in which we live and all around the world who are suffering from acute spiritual malnourishment. They know Christ, but they've been eating junk food. They're well entertained, but they're malnourished. Perhaps they're people who go to church regularly, but they don't hear the Word of God. And so they come away still hungry. Either they're entertained or perhaps they're bored stiff or they're given something like a 20-minute talk on pop psychology. The average sermon length today is filled. you know what it is? Average sermon length today in America? 20 to 28 minutes. You can, you can laugh because if you're here, you, you realize we're a little above, just a little bit over the average on that. But it's not just the length, the average sermon, 20 to 28 minutes. It's the content. Out of the 20 to 28 minutes, most of it is filled up in many places with illustrations and stories and trivialities. So when you consider that people can actually continue to go to a Christian church week after week after week and only get literally a few minutes of the content of God's Word, it's no surprise that we're dealing with acute spiritual malnourishment all around us. And people who aren't getting it in their church gathered are certainly not being encouraged to ingest it on their own. And so there's these two categories of spiritually starving people, lost people and spiritually saved but malnourished people that are starving for the all-sufficient Word of God. Somebody has to go to them. Somebody has to reach them. Somebody has to bring the one thing that can satisfy their souls to where they are. It's what God's called us to do. It's the mission of this church, satisfying the spiritually hungry with the all-sufficient Word of God. That second word, satisfying, is important. Particularly when you think of it in terms of Haggai chapter 1, verses 5 through 6. You, you eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You earn all these wages and you put them in a bag of holes. And nothing satisfies. Nothing satisfies. If you read Ecclesiastes chapter 2, Solomon writes about what it's like to chase after the things of the world. Solomon was the king in Israel. He was the most powerful, most wealthy man in his his day. And, And he spent a season of his life giving himself over to all the things of the world. And he could do it better than you and I could ever do it because he was more powerful and had more money than any of us. And so he says in Ecclesiastes, sort of his journal, here's what I did. I chased after wealth and I accumulated it more than anybody ever. And you know what he says at the end of the day? He says, here's what I found. It was chasing after the wind. It was like chasing after the wind. To find satisfaction in the accumulation of wealth, the most wealthy man ever said, 
It was like chasing the wind. What is that an image of? Chasing the wind. It's a funny illustration. Try it when you leave the building today. Go outside, chase after the wind, and tell me if you catch it. You see, it's a picture of somebody running and chasing and grabbing for something that they can never, ever possibly catch. Solomon said, you know what? I gave myself over to pleasure, too, and I found that money was like chasing after the wind. I went after pleasure, and I went after it with my whole heart. He talks about that in Ecclesiastes. He says, I I could pursue pleasure further than anyone else because I had nearly unlimited power and I had nearly unlimited wealth. And so I could chase pleasure as far as it would take me. And you know what he said at the end of it? I ran as far as pleasure could take me. And at the end of the day, it was like chasing after the wind. He says, utterly meaningless. That's another way of saying it doesn't satisfy. He said, well, if I couldn't do it with wealth and I couldn't do it with pleasure, I I gave myself over to wine and to drink and to laughter and frivolity. Again, a man who could do that better than any of us, take it further than any of us. And he says, at the end of that road, too, I found the same thing. Meaninglessness. Chasing the wind. No satisfaction. He said, I set out to, to, to do a bunch of accomplishments. I set out to, to build gardens. And I, I set out to do architecture. And I set out to, to do all of these things to make a name for myself. You know what he said at the end of that road was? I, I, I tried to, to make myself great, to be admired by people. And he was great. And he was admired by people. Again, at the end of the day, he says... Meaningless. Chasing the wind doesn't satisfy. Oh, and the part about accumulating his wealth, this just struck me. Read it. It's actually kind of funny. He said, it dawned on me one day when I piled up all this wealth, I'm going to leave it to some bratty kid who didn't earn it and won't appreciate it, and he's going to go blow it. That's chasing after the wind. Ecclesiastes is all about the journal of a man who found the reality that chasing after the things that the world says will satisfy They never, ever, ever satisfy. The next relationship will never satisfy. The next possession will never satisfy. The next promotion will never satisfy. No. Psalm 107, verses 8 and 9 tells us this. Let them thank the Lord for His steadfast love, for His wondrous works to the children of man. For He satisfies the longing soul. The hungry soul, he fills with good things. Where does a man find satisfaction? Where does his soul find its home? He finds it in his Creator. The only one who truly satisfies. Psalm 1611, you make known to me the paths of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The things that satisfy come from the hand of God. Psalm 103, 1 through 5, bless the Lord, O my soul. All that's within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, 
who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. Say this part with me. Who satisfies you with good. Spurgeon said this. The Lord sets us longing and then completely satisfies us. That longing leads us into solitude and separation and thirst and faintness and self-despair. And all these things conduct us to prayer, to faith, to divine guidance, satisfying the soul's thirst and rest. The good hand of the Lord is to be seen in the whole process and in the divine result. There's an abundance in the supply which is well worthy of notice. The Lord does nothing in a niggardly fashion, in a stingy fashion. Satisfying and filling are His peculiar modes of treating His guests. And none who come under the Lord's providing ever complain of shortcomings. That's true. Those who come to the Lord to find satisfaction, they never walk away saying, meaningless, chasing after the wind. I'm still needing satisfaction. Because the Lord satisfies. Let me ask you this morning, do you believe that? Do you believe that true satisfaction for your soul only is to be found in one place? In the Lord who created you? In the one who made you? In the one who knows you better than you know yourself? In the one who knows every desire of your heart and who knows exactly how to fill it perfectly? He's the only one that ever satisfies. And we live in a world and a community filled with people who are starving, spiritually hungry. And they need to, their hunger needs to be satisfied. It can only be satisfied in God. Jesus said it this way. He said, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. That sounds different than what Haggai said, right? You eat all this food, but it never you never get full. Jesus says, if you come to me and eat of me, what's, what's going to be the reality of your life? You will never hunger again. I'll fill you. I'll satisfy you. And a few verses later, he says, I'm the bread of life. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. The lost man who's spiritually starving can eat of the Lord Jesus Christ and in eating of Him be fully and completely satisfied and be transformed into the image of His Creator, His sin forgiven, made a new man, eternally saved. He satisfies the saved and the malnourished. Blessed, Jesus said in Matthew 5, 6, are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For they shall be, what? Satisfied. Satisfied. Filled to overflowing with good things. Only God can satisfy spiritually hungry people. And He does it primarily through the means of His all-sufficient Word. It's not through the cleverness of preachers that God satisfies people. It's not through the novelty of programs that God satisfies spiritually hungry people. Preachers are necessary and programs are important, but those are not the things that satisfy. Those are the means by which the Word of God gets communicated to starving people 
who need it. And it's the Word of God that brings the God of the Word into contact with the people who need to encounter Him. It's the all-sufficient Word of God. And so we preach this Word. So we design programs and events and things that are designed to get spiritually hungry people connected to the Word of God that can satisfy them. We don't look for gimmicks. We're not looking for novelty. We're taking the power that God has given through His Word and unleashing it into the lives of spiritually hungry people. And we watch as God satisfies their soul. That's what we're about. Say it with me again. Satisfying the spiritually hungry with the all-sufficient Word of God. That's what we do here. That's who we are. That's what we're about. What is it that motivates us? Why do we do it? Well, we've spent a lot of time over the last couple of years talking about these values that that motivate us. So I don't intend this morning to spend a lot of time on them. I I simply want to put them in front of you again, and I want to highlight one that's going to be a focus this year. The the values that that we've articulated before you, these are the motivations, the shared convictions, the, the why. Why is it that we do what we do? Why is it that we're about satisfying the spiritually hungry with the all-sufficient Word of God? It's because we have a, a very high value for four things. Four things that we value. The first is, is probably the most obvious of those things. The first value is that we are, we're people who are delighting in the truth. We delight in the truth of God's Word, don't, don't we? As, as a church, we are, we're a church who loves God's Word. That's why you're here. You, you don't come here for reasons other than delighting in God's Word. You, if you didn't delight in God's Word, you would go somewhere with a 20-minute sermon with lots of stories and, you know, inspiration and all the other things. And you'd be out a lot sooner. You'd beat people like this church to the restaurant after service on Sunday morning. Oh, you come here because you delight in God's Word. And, and that, that permeates everything that we do. We, we're, we're a church who loves the Word of God. That's why we sing songs that are, that are filled with God's Word. It's why the prayers that we pray are permeated with the Word of God. It's why the Bible studies we do are Bible studies that are, that are not largely groups where everybody sits around and says, well, what do you think and what do you think and what do you think? They're, they're Bible studies that are geared around teaching the content of God's Word. It's because it's a high value. And it's one that doesn't need much more to be said about it than that. We, it's a reflection of our, of our conviction of Psalm 1 and Psalm 119. We're people who, whose delight is in the law of the Lord. We're people who, who delight in God's statutes, who are determined not to forget His Word. It's in high value here. A second thing that we highly value is the issue of generosity. We're, we're a church that overflows with generosity. It's another unique characteristic and motivator of this congregation. It's made up of people who love to be generous. Your generosity overflows in so many different ways. It overflows in the way that you contribute financially to the work of the ministry here. I mean, if you just go back and you can and you can look at you know budgets from years past and you can continue to track uh, the generosity of God's people and the faithfulness of this congregation just in the area of financial contributions. 
and supporting the work of the ministry. Uh, your, your generosity is obvious. But I, I get the opportunity to see it in so many other ways. When some of our brothers and sisters have needs and others of you find out about it, the joy and the generosity and the happiness that overflows to be able to, to go to that brother or sister and meet that need, the joy in giving, the joy in serving, is an overflow of a generous heart. You're a generous people. It's one of the values that makes us unique as a church. We're a reflection, I think, similar of 2 Corinthians chapter 8, where Paul talks about the Macedonian church, where, it says, where he says about them, in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity. That's a good description, I think, of Grace on the Ashley. We're not a church of, of rich people. We're, we're, this is not the, this is not the uh, lifestyles of the rich and famous here. Right? It's not. It's a, it's a sort of a, a, a mixed group of people from every walk of life, from every demographic that is normal to common people. And yet, you love to give. And I know, because I've seen it so many times, many of you, who I know because I know your lives, have needs of your own that need to be filled who with great joy and happiness run to go meet somebody else's. It's a reflection of an overflow of generosity. It's part of who you are. It's a part of who we are. It's a part of, I think, what makes us unique. I've been a pastor now, in some full-time sense, for 23 and a half years. 18 and a half as some sort of a... Uh, primary or lead pastor and I've lived through other seasons of church life in other places and I've served in other churches where that was not the case where, where generosity was not the value and was not the reality but that's not true here we are a church that overflows with generosity it motivates us it brings joy to us to give and I love that about you Investing in others is another one of those key values that's important to us. We take seriously things like 1 Thessalonians chapter 5.11, which tells us that we're to encourage one another and build one another up. We take seriously Romans 12.9 and 10, which tells us that we're to let love be genuine, that we're to abhor what is evil and to hold fast to what is good, that we're to love one another with brotherly affection, that we're to outdo one another in showing honor. We care about investing in other people. Our ethos is not one where we just want to show up together for a few minutes on Sunday morning, observe a show, and then go out about our own solitary lives disconnected from one another. We're a church that wants to be together. A church that wants to be more than just casual strangers who pass by one another in the aisles a couple times a month on a Sunday morning. We're a congregation who cares about investing our lives in other people beyond the surface. We want to be in small groups with each other where we can talk, where we can laugh together, where we can cry together, where we can get to know each other 
in a more intimate and personal basis where we can encourage one another and build one another up and love one another and hold one another accountable. It's a part of who we are as a congregation. We care about investing in other people. This is not the place you want to be if you want to, if you want to just come somewhere where you can just be anonymous. We don't want you to be anonymous. We want to know you. You show that by the way you treat guests who come in the doors every week. I hear it all the time. These people are so nice. They're so friendly. It's not a show. I tell them all the time. It's not a show. I promise you. It's not pretend. They're nice to you because they care about you. And they really want to know you. They believe God might have some role for them in your life. And they're excited about that. They want to invest in you. And so they smile at you and they speak to you and they ask you about your family. We're a church that cares about investing in others. And I think in each of those three values, those values have exuded themselves very well in these first seven, eight years. What is it, Pastor Frank? January, what is it now? Eight years? Seven years? I don't know. I, I quit, it's like when you hit 40, you quit counting your age. Somebody asked me the other day how old I am. I said, I don't know. I did 73. That's one, two, three, 44, I think. However many years we've been graced on the Ashley, delighting in truth, investing in others, and overflowing with generosity, those, those values have feet in our congregation regularly. That brings us to our final value. I just want to spend a couple minutes on this. That final value we've sort of encapsulated by calling it growing to go. And it simply captures two pieces to our motivation. We're a church that cares about spiritual growth. We're a church that cares about growing people up in their faith and not allowing everyone to just continue to live at at a surface level of immaturity. But we care deeply about growing in our walk with the Lord and not becoming stagnant. And so we want to study and we want to reach and we want to, we want to think and we want to, we want to dig into God's Word and we know we haven't arrived and we want to get there and so we're motivated to grow in our faith and we're motivated to encourage each other to grow in our faith. And the depth of what we do is designed for that. But we've captured this, this final value by not just saying growing. Uh, by saying growing to go. Because biblically, growth is intended to result in going. That God grows us in order to deploy us. He grows us in order that we might go and invest what's been invested in us into somebody else who needs the investment. And so our ministry is designed to grow you, not so that you can just continue to come here and grow, but to continue to grow you so that you can then go somewhere and help somebody else to grow. So it's growing in order to go. First Peter chapter 2 is where this is anchored. Verses 2 and 9. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into your salvation. And later in that same conversation, he says this, that, in order that, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. In other words, Peter is writing to these believers, you need to to strive to grow up in every way to mature in your faith so that you can get out there and proclaim the excellencies of Christ to other people. 
And you see on your note sheet there, if you got one of those, that that's demonstrated by discipling God's people with God's Word and deploying them to satisfy the spiritually hungry in the low country, our nation, and the nations of the world. This is the one value that is a true value of our congregation, but it's a value that has not yet grown feet in the body. And so it's one that we're going to give great attention to this year. As elders and as as pastors, we're going to talk about growing to go a good bit this year because we need to focus on this value. It's time to, to, to turn outward more than we have been so far. This is something that we highly value. It's just not something that we're highly doing. And, and let me just say right at the outset, I don't say that as an insult to you. That, that's partially a leadership issue. That, that's on me. Um, as, as a pastor, I haven't done a good enough job focusing, developing, and articulating to you how that needs to be happening. And so that's work on my plate that I need to do a better job of. And as a leadership, we're going to work to do a better job of articulating before you on a regular basis, what does it look like to go? What kind of things should we be going and doing? And then how should we go about it? And equipping you to be able to do it. So part of it's a leadership issue, and part of it's a motivational issue, I think, for all of us. We just need to be motivated a little more. And so we're going to work on those things this year. We're going to work on growing to go. Putting some feet underneath that value in the life of our church. One of the ways you're going to see that happen this year and early in the year is through the establishment of what we're going to call a go team. The go team is simply going to be a, a team that the elders put together, made up of some of you, to come alongside us and help us to do three things. To design a clear strategy for our evangelism and missions efforts. To design a clear strategy. To develop a clear plan to get us moving forward. And to help us deploy people out into the field. To devi- design, develop, and to deploy this year. We need people who have a heart for going. And people who have a heart for helping us develop this piece of, of the puzzle in our ministry. Talk to some of you already about this because I know you have a heart for it. And I know that you're already out there doing this. But perhaps the Lord has put in your heart to this desire to be a part of that. Well, come talk to me. Come talk to Pastor Frank. We'll entertain that. We're looking for people who want to go who want to see this part of our congregational life develop feet. And who want to be a part of helping us do that. One of the first ways we're going to start deploying is through Good News Clubs. That's a way of going. Training this Saturday, 8.30, for those who want to be a part of serving in that ministry. In the small auditorium. It's our first baby step in going. Going into a schoolhouse right down the street and investing the all-sufficient Word of God to spiritually hungry little children who may not hear it anywhere else. We're going to go. It's a first step. I'm praying for something else, personally, that by this time next year, we're going to be able to look back and say that in 2018, we've deployed 20, at least 20 people in our congregation outside of these walls, somewhere intentionally, to do missions and evangelism. Somewhere. 
That's near about 10% of our membership. Not a super ambitious goal, but we need to deploy 20 people this year so we can deploy 40 next year. So that we can deploy 80 the following year. So that we can get to a place where the bulk of our congregation every year is going somewhere and doing something outside of these walls where they're connecting with spiritually hungry people and bringing to them in some form or fashion the all-sufficient Word of God outside of here. But this year I'm praying for 20 people. I'm going to put a list in my office somewhere and I'm going to keep it all year. And I believe some of your names probably need to go on it at some point this year. Because God's calling you to go somewhere and do something. In your neighborhood, somewhere in this city, somewhere in some other part of the United States, or maybe to one of the nations of the world somewhere. Somewhere where there's spiritually hungry people and God's calling some of you to go and to bring to them His all-sufficient Word. He's calling you to deploy. That's you. That's you. I want you to say yes to that call in your life, and I want you to go do it. Because there are people who are starving who need what you have to give. And because you need to go, because of what God's going to do in your life as you go. As He matures you in your faith. And when you go, I want you to let me know that you went and what you've done so I can put your name on my list. Not so that you can rob God of His glory by taking it for yourself, but just so I can keep track. You're a gracious congregation. You, you, you deploy me as one of your main pastors, preaching pastors, out to the mission field of the military to go into a place where there's spiritual starvation. You sacrifice to do that. That means I'm gone from your presence a number of weeks out of the year. It's a sacrifice on your part to send me, and I enjoy going. I'm going to also go and volunteer in the, in the Good News Clubs this year, just as a grunt volunteer. That's all I'm going to be, I, because I want to go somewhere and do something. And I'm praying for a third thing that the Lord can show me this year that I can do that's out of here where I can go. I want to do three things. I don't know how many things your, your life will allow for you to do. I'm just calling you to do something. Go somewhere. Go somewhere. Find spiritually hungry people and go. Take them the all-sufficient word. You can go alone or you can go with somebody else. You can go with a group somewhere. The sky's the limit. But find the hungry and feed them. On the 30th of May, 1792, in the Friar Lane Baptist Chapel in Nottingham, William Carey stood up to preach. He preached Isaiah 54, verses 2 through 3, which in part says, Enlarge the place of thy tent, and let them stretch forth the curtains of thine inhabitants, and on and on. It's a, a prayer to enlarge the tents of God's people and to reach more people. And in the context of a dark hyper-Calvinism of the particular Baptists of William Carey's day, largely ignored completely the issue of going. William Carey stood up in front of that group of particular Baptists and he said this, Expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. Expect great things from God. 
tenth great things from God. So concise and so true. But two things that go together. Expect great things from God, but get out there and attempt some great things for God too. William Carey did that. And God did great things through his life. And he has through numerous other believers whose names none of us will ever know. Simply because they took seriously the call of God to go to the spiritually hungry and to feed them the word of God. And they saw God do great things. I look out in here and I see faces of people who are going. I see people going to Romania. I see people going to bikers, wherever bikers gather. I see people going to the nations of the world, into unreached villages and remote parts, parts of the world right here in this room. And I see the faces of others who need to go somewhere. Oh, I, I challenge you. Begin to pray about that right now. Where can I go? God, where can I go? Send me somewhere. Let's pray. We're grateful, oh God, for what you've done in the life of our church. We're grateful for another year to look back on. To look back on and celebrate your great faithfulness to us. Another great year of your provision and your work in our lives. Another great year of you sovereignly bringing to us new families who have been such a blessing to us, have locked arms with us and continue to do ministry together with us. And we're thankful for the vision you've given us for what it means to be Grace on the Ashley, for this call to satisfy spiritually hungry people with your all-sufficient word. You've equipped us perfectly. You've given us everything we need to do that well. You've given us generous people who care about investing in one another. You've given us a love for your word and your truth. And now, Lord, we pray that you'd deploy us into a world of hungry people who are starving. That you would motivate us to go. That you would give us a clear vision for strategy and direction. For how we ought to particularly be going about that as a church in which directions and in what places and in what ways. We pray for your, uh, for your wisdom and your guidance as we gather a go team in these next months and begin to think through these things. I pray for those who have gathered in this place today, along with myself, that you would burn within our hearts a desire to go somewhere and do something. That that would be a, a prayer on all of our hearts daily. Open our eyes, Lord, to the field. And motivate us to go somewhere for your glory and for your honor and for the advance of your kingdom, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.